We prioritize God's word here as our authority, the thing that is to instruct and inform everything that we do. We think that it's really healthy for everybody who calls himself a child of God to sit under authority each and every week, and so we open up God's word to do just that. We are in the Gospel of Mark again this morning. If you'll turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. It's in the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. Mark chapter 2, this is God's word, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to thirst after you this morning? To earnestly seek you. To open up our mouths wide that you may fill it. Father, we pray that with great confidence because we know you love to exalt your son. Show us his greatness and glory in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paralysis is catastrophic. It's hard to think of a more difficult diagnosis. It's an overwhelming reality. Can you imagine? It's hard to even think or comprehend what it would be like to not have the use of your arms and legs and to be able to move and do normal things that we take for granted. Every single day, every single minute. I imagine that it can lead to a great sense of hopelessness, of wanting to be able to accomplish something but not having the ability to do it. You might try to believe against hope that, that something could be done to fix this, and that can easily lead to despair as one flicker of hope after another is snuffed out. Mark 2 tells us of such a man, a paralytic. The story isn't mainly about his paralysis. It isn't about his hopelessness primarily. Not about his condition. Mark instead puts the spotlight not on the paralytic, not even on his healing, but on the healer, on Jesus. The healing that we see in Mark chapter 2 is is certainly for the paralytic. 
but not primarily about him. Paralysis isn't the focus. The healing isn't the focus. Jesus is. So Mark retraces this paralytic's healing, describing his and his friend's approach to Jesus. He describes the answer they receive from Jesus and the aftermath of Jesus' work, all to lead us to the conclusion that the the crowd reaches as well. Amazement. Mark writes, not so much that we would see just the paralytic and his healing, but that we'd be amazed at Jesus and his authority. Not just his healing, but his authority to do what he does. So in Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus back in Capernaum. It becomes kind of a base of operations for them. It was here that he had healed Simon's mother-in-law and many others. It's here that he cast out demons in the synagogue and others at another house, possibly the same house he's at here in chapter 2. And it says that he returned to Capernaum after some days. And it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. This is, after all, why Jesus came. He came to preach. In chapter 1, verse 38, we see this exact reality. He says this after they come to him when he's by himself. They say, there are a lot of people waiting for you. And he says, well, let's, let's go. I came to preach to others as well. He came to preach. He came with the announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. That the people need to repent and believe because, because he is here, the kingdom of God is near. And so he came proclaiming something. He came calling to repentance. He came to preach. And his preaching in and of itself is enough to draw a crowd because he didn't just preach as like other teachers, preachers, scribes, and Pharisees. He preached as one who had authority. He preached as the authority. And that authority in and of itself could draw a crowd. People wanted to hear him because of his authority because he didn't talk like anybody else they'd ever heard. And so he comes to Capernaum, he's back at his home, and he's preaching, and it draws a crowd. And likely not everyone who gathered was just there to listen to him. They'd seen his power, or they'd heard of his power, and they came, maybe hoping to see it again, maybe with their own loggings, thinking, I hope his power would work in my life, on me, and in my condition, in my situation. We know that's true of at least a few that day were there. And there were four guys, and they came with their friend, and they didn't just want to hear Jesus preach. They wanted Jesus to heal. Verse 3, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Mark doesn't give us detail here. Why is he paralyzed? Did he have a diving accident in the Sea of Galilee? Did he get bucked off a horse on his way down the road? Did he have a work accident? Was he born this way? Was it sin that caused this? Mark gives us no details on any of this. We don't know the why of the paralysis. We don't know why he's paralyzed. But we do know that he has four friends that are determined to get this man to Jesus. They want to get him well, and so they carry him to Jesus. And as they do, they encounter this crowd. And this crowd is like most If you've been in a crowd, you know what they're experiencing. Because what happens when they come to this crowd carrying this paralyzed friend is that the crowd doesn't really care. They don't move aside and say, well, this is a bad condition. Let's move out of the way so that they can get to Jesus. They're pretty uninterested in their problems. They're unwilling to move aside. And so here's what the friends do. Verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let him down. The door's blocked. The crowd's in the way. They're not moving. What do you do? Do you, do you give up hope? Do you, 
just wait it out? Do you, continue, do you start a fight and say, we're getting through no matter what? Or the friends don't give up. They start looking around and they find an idea. Hey, let's go to the roof and let's just start ripping it apart. So they go to the roof and they make a hole. Now, houses at the time had flat roofs. And so most of the time, these houses could be accessible by some sort of outside stairway. So they could have looked around, seen a stairway and said, let's go up there and find out how to get in. And on these flat roofs, they would be made with wooden beams and they would have thatching on them as well. I have a picture of this, I think would be what it would look like. They would use these flat roofs for storing food or sleeping in the summer, and then you could see like they're, they're made with wooden beams and all that thatching on top. And this person with this picture was very serious about their copyright rules, so I just let them win. But this was probably what a, a roof would look like. This is what they're taking apart. So don't imagine they're ripping off shingles and then the, the plywood decking before they can kind of see down into the insulation that they'll need to pull. This is what they're probably pulling apart. And so here we are. They're pulling this apart as Jesus is gracing the crowd with his authoritative preaching. A few guys start removing the roof above them. They hear this strange noise. They, they see dust begin to fall around them, and pretty soon there's daylight above them. And then it gets a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger. My guess is that the crowd was pretty distracted at this time, and the opening is expanded, so much so that the four men, verse 4, could let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And these guys are determined, and likely they're desperate to get their friend to Jesus. And this is not the point of what Mark is writing at all, but what a picture of community. They're doing everything they can to get their friend to Jesus. We'll carry him on a mat. We'll dig a hole in the roof. Whatever we got to do to lower that guy down so that he can see Jesus. Those are kind of the friends that we all need. Those are the kind of friends we need to be. Sojourners, I want us to be notorious for this kind of stuff right here. The people who are determined to get one another to Jesus. We'll walk with you, or we will drag you, carry you, whatever we got to do, as long as we can get you before Jesus. These guys are determined, and their approach to Jesus is noteworthy. It's commendable, even if they have some repairs to make after they're through. And as extraordinary as their approach to Jesus was, the answer that they received from Jesus is even more extraordinary. Look in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So first verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, not only does Jesus have authority to teach and to heal, as we've already seen in Mark, but he has authority to see into the hearts. And he looks right into these guys, right into their hearts, and he sees faith. He saw through all the dust and all the circumstances that brought them there, all of the crowds, and he looks into their hearts and he sees faith. Now what kind of faith are we talking about here? Again, Mark doesn't describe it. Do they have faith that Jesus would heal? Seems like there's some of that. Do they have faith that Jesus is the Son of God? Do they think he's the Messiah? Mark doesn't say. The, the strength of their faith, the depth of their faith, the purity of their faith are all unknown. But here's what Mark is clear to point out. The object of their faith, and that's Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller says, he gives this illustration where he says, imagine you're falling off a cliff and sticking out of that cliff is a branch that's strong enough to hold you but you don't know how strong it is. And as you fall, you have just enough time to grab that branch. He asks this question, how much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? 
Must you be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You have only enough time to grab a hold of the branch. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. Here we don't see their faith. We don't know how deep it is. We don't know how strong it is. We don't know how pure it is. We don't know how intense it is. All we know is that it has an object, and that object is Jesus. And that's who they're going after. They surely didn't have perfect faith, but they acted to ensure that their friend got to Jesus. They knew that he could do something. So they had this imperfect faith. Maybe they're disappointed by his answer, but the object of their faith was in the right place regardless. It was in Jesus. It is not faith in general that saves us. It is not strong faith that saves us. It is not deep faith that saves us. It is not intense faith that saves us. It is not pure faith that saves us. It is faith in Jesus that saves us. You may not have the strongest faith. You may not have the deepest faith. You may not have the purest faith. But if you have faith in Jesus, then you're secure. Who or what, brothers and sisters, is the object of your faith? Here's what we can know, that if you start looking at your actions, they're going to tell the tale. Your actions are going to reveal what you believe in, what your faith is placed in. They're going to reveal the object of your faith in some form or fashion. So start looking at how you live your life, the things you think, say, do, and trace those back to the source, saying, what am I trusting in? What is the object of my faith? It will tell you an answer. The object is of the first importance with our faith. Yes, we want to pursue strong faith. We want to pursue deep faith. We want to pursue pure faith, but we want to pursue faith in Jesus. We want to work for strong faith in Jesus, deep faith in Jesus, intense faith in Jesus, pure faith in Jesus. He must be the object. Miss the object of the faith. Get that wrong, and the strength, depth, purity, intensity of your faith doesn't matter. It's faith in Jesus that saves And so Jesus looks into their heart. He sees their faith. And then he says something to them that's really unexpected and interesting. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, wait a second. What did he just do? They they go through this huge display, right? right, We're going to go up the roof. We're going to dig this hole. Everybody's paying attention at this point. This guy is paralyzed. Clearly, he wants to see Jesus. And they lower him. This is a lot of work. And they get all the way there. They've come all the way for him to heal, and and he says, what? Your sins are forgiven? Have you ever gone in to get the oil change in your car? And as you go in, like, they'll come back with a report, and they'll give you about 30 things that need to be done immediately that have nothing to do with your oil? Like, that's what's happening here. Like, we went in because we're, we have this paralyzed friend, and all of a sudden he says something about sins being forgiven. Right, they'd clearly come for healing. They thought maybe Jesus could deliver. They'd heard of what he's done. They may have seen what he'd done, and they go to him, and Jesus seemingly ignores them, the reason that they came. He says nothing about the paralysis. He speaks of sin. Your, son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe they'd have found that interesting. Perhaps they'd have found it offensive. What is Jesus doing here when he says, Son, your sins are forgiven? Jesus looks at this paralyzed man, and what he's doing is he is addressing a much bigger, a much deeper, a much more concerning problem. This paralytic may not know it, but his biggest problem isn't his paralysis. His paralysis is a big concern. 
There is no downplaying that whatsoever here. That's a major thing. Can you imagine how your life would be different if you didn't have the use of your limbs? Like, this is a big deal. And without downplaying it, Jesus addresses something bigger. You see, the place that needs the most healing is not the man's body, but the man's soul. Paralysis is no doubt a difficult condition, but being a sinner is a much worse condition. Paralysis had brought these men to Jesus, and he answers them oddly, and maybe they were left thinking, does he even care about the pain and suffering of this man? Johnny Erickson Tata, she's a Christian, author, speaker. She's been a quadriplegic for over 50 years. And she confesses to approaching Jesus just to be healed. She even said, I was into Jesus to get my pain and paralysis fixed. Perhaps that's the man in Mark 2. Maybe they're there just to get the pain and paralysis fixed. And here he says, your sins are forgiven. And they might be thinking, does Jesus even care about this paralysis? Well, Johnny Erickson Tata discovered something. She goes on to say this. And I realized that, yes, Jesus cares about suffering. And he spent most of his time when he was on the earth relieving it. You see him, he goes out and he's healing. He, he cares about suffering. He heals many. Then she continues. But the Gospel of Mark showed me his priorities. Because the same man that healed blind eyes and withered hands is the same one who said, gouge out that eye, cut off that hand if it leads you into sin. And that's an interesting turn. Cut off your hand? Jesus healed a man who had a withered hand. He, he made blind people see. And here he's saying, gouge out your eyes. What could be going on? And she continues, I got the picture. To me, physical healing had always been the big deal. But to God, my soul was a much bigger deal. Jesus sees this man. And he addresses the much bigger deal. He addresses his soul, saying, son, your sins are forgiven. My fear is that we are going to see our souls, that we will not see our souls as a bigger deal. That we'd gladly settle for less. Are we guilty of, of coming to Jesus to just fix our pains and our problems with no interest whatsoever, no worry if our biggest problem is addressed by him? Are we okay if Jesus fixes the biggest felt need in our life, whether that be financial or relational or physical, and doesn't address our soul? Are we okay with that? Are we into Jesus as long as he's working to meet the, our felt pains, our physical maladies, but disinterested or upset or even hardened when he starts to deal with our sins? I can say that there have been many times in my life when I've been more interested in Jesus fixing my current circumstance, physical, financial, relational problem, than in him addressing my soul. When I wished he would address lots of other issues before he got to my sin. We simply just don't see our greatest problem as pertaining to our souls. We see it as something else. We don't see our greatest problem as sin before a holy God. We see it as something financial, relational, physical. Perhaps this stems from a small view of, of God and sin. A view of God that would think of him not really as that holy, and a view of sin is not that bad. 
Maybe that's what leads us into these kinds of actions. We speak of God as if he's just like us, as if he's on our level, not as a holy enthroned God who created all things and holds judgment over all things, one to be feared. We, we speak of sin as merely missing the mark, which seems to make it a matter of aim and not of offending a holy God. If God is not that holy, if he's not really enthroned as the king, and sin is just not that bad, I just have missed the mark, then fix my pain and not my soul. Fix my pain and not my sin. And if we have a small view of God and sin, then our greatest problem is whatever's most pressing in our lives. No matter what that is, that's our greatest problem. But our authoritative word here before us is clear. God is holy. So holy that beings created to be in his presence are covering their faces and they're screaming out, shaking the thresholds of heaven, saying, holy, holy, holy. Our God is holy. And our sin, in light of his holiness, isn't only a matter of aim and missing the mark. I love how one author shreds that to pieces when he says, It's not only that they miss the mark. He's speaking of us. Not they. He's speaking of us. They cease to aim at the mark at all. They refuse to recognize it as a standard and objective in life. God is deliberately dethroned and his entire way of life is jettisoned. That sounds offensive. And I think it brings clarity. Sin is missing the mark. It's a lot more than that as well. We have a small view of God and a small view of our sin. And if we have those things, then our greatest problem is whatever's pressing on in our lives. But the scripture is clear that that's not our greatest problem. That our greatest problem, no matter what else we come in with, is that without forgiveness from God, we are headed for eternal destruction in a real place. The Bible is clear. Sin is our greatest problem. Forgiveness is our greatest need. Jesus is our only hope. And that doesn't minimize the pain or the suffering or the turmoils and the struggles that we all come in here with that mark us all in our lives. It's not to minimize any of that or any of the ways that we approach Jesus. Jesus isn't uncaring about all of our suffering, but he cares most about our eternal suffering. He cares most about our souls. Perhaps he might be using our suffering to waken us to the real need C.S. Lewis says it that way, right? He says he uses his pain as as a megaphone to a deaf world. Perhaps, we don't know this for sure, perhaps maybe though, he's using your pain, your suffering to point to you, point you to the greatest need in your life. Your need before God. Johnny Erickson Tata discovered this. She said this, "I, I began to see that there are more important things in life than walking and having the use of our hands, of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. How many of us would settle long before that? Would much rather have us on our feet without Jesus than in a wheelchair with him. May God move us to this place. 
This means that when Jesus pronounces to this man who is paralyzed, your sins are forgiven, what he is doing is addressing the greatest problem. He is being more gracious, more loving, more concerned than this man could have dared even to hope as they ripped apart that roof. Jesus knows that if he heals this man and he gives him the joy of walking and running and leaping for joy, that that is going to fade and wear off after time. You know how it goes. You get something great and you enjoy it for a while and you're really excited about it, but it doesn't take very long when that joy starts to evaporate. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And the joy of sins forgiven is a joy that won't fade for eternity. Uh, All the pleasures of this life are going to fade, but the joy of forgiveness isn't going to fade forever. And we have to know this. And so Jesus' answer to this man is really, really good news for us. Because Jesus is more gracious, more loving than we could dare even to hope. He doesn't just care about our physical problems. He cares about our souls. He might give us the joy of our suffering healed. He might take away some of your pain and trials and turmoils. It's not promised, but he might do it. But he definitely cares about taking away your eternal suffering. He cares some about your joy now, but he cares a lot about your eternal joy. So much so that he comes. He offers himself as a sacrifice. So let us approach Jesus as the object of our faith, as the one who can actually give us what we most need. Let's trust in him and his work. And when we come to him, and if he doesn't do exactly what we want him to do, let's trust that he's working all things for our good, that he is the one who knows what our good is and that he's working for it. We can trust him. Whether that leads to physical, financial, relational healing or not, he's the only one that can actually give us the healing that we need. So let's submit ourselves under him and let him bring what's best for us. Beloved, forgiveness is what we need. And when he announces forgiveness to this man, we we should know, we should be assured that forgiveness isn't just available to this one man who dropped before him. Jesus will forgive anyone who will turn to him in faith who will put him as the object of their faith, no matter how weak. He'll forgive them. I have no idea what you guys brought in here today. Did you come for Jesus to fix your problem? Maybe. Take out this suffering, fix my financial burden, fix this relationship, take away this physical problem that I'm dealing with. You might have come in here approaching Jesus to do all of that. But go at least knowing that Jesus wants to fix a lot more than that. Something more important, something eternally important. He wants to address your soul. When we know sin is our greatest problem, then there is no greater pronouncement than what Jesus gives to us in verse 5. Son, your sins are forgiven. And if you are in Christ, if you have repented and believed in Jesus, then you can know that this is pronounced over you as well. It is on repeat in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 7. Paul says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches 
of his grace. In the book of Colossians, he says that he has transferred us, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of person is this? This is one who can give us redemption in his name, the forgiveness of our sins. In chapter 2, verse 13 of Colossians. He says, and you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were by nature children of wrath. You are deserving of God's eternal judgment. Here is what he has instead done. He has made us alive with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. If you are in Christ, you have the same pronouncement over you. Son, your sins are forgiven. There could be no greater news that we could hear, no greater pronouncement than what Jesus gives in that. If you haven't trusted Jesus... If he isn't the object of your faith, then you can hear and respond. You can come. Jesus has left the offering, the invitation open to trust in him that your sins might be forgiven as well. Come in faith. Come like these guys. Maybe they don't know what all they're doing, but they know they're getting to Jesus. Come to Jesus for forgiveness. They approached and they expected an answer, but they got something unexpected. Mark turns the story then to the aftermath of what's going on. Of all that has happened, what he said, we hear no response from the paralytic. We hear no response from his friends. We do hear response from others, or we don't really hear it. Jesus hears it. It's not spoken out loud. Verse 6 says this. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These scribes are the, they're the lawyers. They're the professional interpreters and teachers of the law. They are experts on the law. And, and what they do here is I think that they question rightly. I think they have a good question. They question rightly on sin and forgiveness. Right? They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's right. In Psalm 51, you might remember that we think this is commonly attributed to David after he sinned with Bathsheba. So he sees a woman, lusts after her, takes her for his own. So he's clearly sinning against her. He then has her husband killed, sinning against him. And he's already at the king being passive when all of his men are at war, sinning against Israel, his troops. And we could go on and on. His other wives, his other children. I mean, the sin is compounded here in David's life. And yet, what does he say in his confession in Psalm 51, verse 4? He says, against you, you only, have I sinned. Wait, what? I just named several. I mean, we could could be talking about thousands of people that David has sinned against in this one act. And he says, against you only, have I sinned. Not Uriah, not Bathsheba, not my other wives, not Israel. He has sinned against them. But in a much greater sense, he's sinned against God. Because all sin is first sin against God. It's his law, his standard that's being disobeyed. It's his standard that's being missed. It's his mark that we are rejecting. It's his image that we are misrepresenting. All of our sin, it might be against others, but it is primarily against God. So all confession, repentance is to be at least before God because he's primarily the offended party. And since all sin is first against God, the scribes are right to say, Well, who can forgive sins except for God? He's the one who's actually offended. 
right? So only he can forgive. So imagine with me that I get, I get punched in the face and beat up and taken to the hospital. I know it's hard to imagine because I'm so strong and tough. Let's just, I mean, go there with me. Imagine that I get beat up and put in the hospital. Pastor Jay comes along, visits me in the hospital. He's a good friend. He says, you know what, Dylan? I found those guys. And I'm like, tell me the story. You and who else found this guy that did this? And you, tell, tell me what you did to him. And he says, no, 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 we, I forgave him for you. I'm like, you, you what? You, you, did, you, forget, you didn't fight him, you forgave him. Why would that be wrong? Jay didn't get punched. He didn't get put in the hospital. He is not in the position to be able to extend forgiveness, right? Only the one who's been offended can do that. And God is the one who is punched in sin, right? And so God is the one that all of us need forgiveness from. But the scribes are saying that in a right way and also questioning it in a wrong way as well. I like what one author says, and he talks about the logic of the argument. He says, they reason, since only God can forgive sins, and this man claims to forgive sins, then he must be blaspheming. That's one conclusion you could go with. Or you could go with this one. There was, however, an alternative conclusion. Perhaps he did have the authority to forgive sins, in which case he must be God. Their first clue that they had it wrong, that their conclusion was off, should have been evident when Jesus speaks to them in verse 8. What does verse 8 say? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, says to them. So it's almost like this conversation is having, happening out loud, but it's not. Like, there's a bunch of individual scribes, and he's hearing their thoughts, in a sense. No one else knows what's going on, but he answers to them. Like, you ever had someone do that? Like, they kind of speak to you in, in something you would never would have said, and you're like, how did you get in my head? Like, stay out of it. Have you ever had that? That's what these scribes are probably feeling. Like, there's something going, alarm bells are going off when Jesus starts saying to them, well, verse 8, why do you question these things in your heart? They're like, what? I didn't, I didn't question it. I didn't say anything. Jesus knows them. He has the authority to know their hearts, to know them, to know the questions of their hearts. And his question to them displays his power, displays his authority. This should be their first hint that maybe their conclusion was off. Who can discern my questions in my heart? But Jesus doesn't stop with this questioning their questions. He speaks right into them. Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So he's, he's countering with a really good argument, logical argument that's really built for legal experts. That's what they are. He's giving very logically sound argument. Which is easier to say? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, rise, get up, and walk? The logic here, I think, goes that it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, rather than to say, get up and walk, or rise, because I think it's easier to say it because it's difficult to disprove whether he's right or wrong here. If he says your sins are forgiven, you could be like, I don't, how do you prove that? How do you disprove that? That's a hard one to hold up. But if you say, rise, get up, and walk, then the authority of your words is going to be immediately evident. You either get up or you don't. And so it seems as if he's saying, get up is a lot harder to say than your sins are forgiven because of the results. The effects of the words rise could be immediately proven or disproven. And so with establishing, I think, forgiven as the easier thing to say, Jesus then moves, I think, into the harder thing to say. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, 
I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I saw this week in the news that there was a man who's he's 30 year old, he's paralyzed, he'd been paralyzed for four years or so, that he was able to walk this week. And he was able to walk this week with this uh, mechanical, robotic exoskeleton. It's a 140-pound exoskeleton they kind of put on him and, and harnessed to the ceiling. And they said of this, the suit is controlled by two implants that were surgically placed on the surface of his brain. And the implants, they, they cover the parts of the brain that control movement. Think about that. They, they can find out what parts of the brain can control movement, and they're going to put implants on those so that you can control an exoskeleton. So there's 64 electrodes from each implant that read the brain activity, and the movement instructions are then sent to a nearby computer, which reads the brain waves and turns them into instructions for the exoskeleton. I mean, that is incredible technology. Think of all that goes into it. I don't know a lot about technology, but there's a ton that just goes into every single element of this. That you have this exoskeleton, that you have this computer that can read this, that you can put implants on your brain. I mean, that is amazing. Genius. And this man has been training on this for two years. He did some simulations, and then he actually put on the suit this week and, and tried to walk. He's been doing this for two years. Two years he's been trying this out. And still, one expert said, this is far, far from autonomous walking. Right? It can't pick up quick movements yet. There's limits on what they can read from the brain because there's not a ton of knowledge there. They're, they're limited on what brain data they can pick up. It's incredible, but they're still limited. Jesus said, rise. He, Jesus said, rise. And the guy got up. And he walked out. And Jesus can read brain activity perfectly. He knows what signals need to be sent to which muscles. He knows which ones are broken down. He knows which muscles are atrophied. He knows where there's issues. He knows every single part of this. And he says, get up. And he gets up. He can find the problem and he can fix it by speaking words. He immediately heals this man. He knows how to bring life to dead limbs. He was there when they were knit together. He says, rise. And the man gets up. In other words, this son of man has authority. This healing, it isn't just the he- about the healing. It isn't just about the paralysis. This healing is about the authority of the son of man. It's the authority of Jesus that's being put on display here by Mark. This healing is for this paralytic, but it's not really about him. It's about so much more than just him. Jesus is establishing his authority, authority as the very authority that comes from God. He's saying that, that he is God. He has authority to say rise, and it happened instantly, and he has authority to say forgiven, and it's done. And so while this healing certainly goes a long way in establishing the reality of Jesus' authority, what I think it also does is it points us ahead. Jesus asked the legal experts a question. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise, get up and walk. But which is easier? Rise or forgiven? 
We think we know which one is easier to say, but I think it's a harder question when we think about which one is easier. It's a question perhaps with no answer at all. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiving, what he's doing is he's revealing his determination to die. He's setting his face to the cross. Because the only way that sins are forgiven for anyone is through the death of Jesus. He's casting himself onto the road to Calvary because his sacrificial death is the only path for any to find forgiveness. And so when he says, son, your, son, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to do this. The hopelessness of paralysis would be overwhelming, I think. But may we consider the hopelessness of finding forgiveness apart from this authoritative son of God. That is a much starker reality. And Mark would not have any of us leaving without looking to this Jesus and seeing that he has the authority to forgive sins so that we won't walk into the hopeless wondering of trying to find forgiveness apart from Jesus. That's a bad condition. Much worse than paralysis or whatever you walked in here with. And Jesus came determined to die that many might hear, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus has the authority to say this. That's the authority that should leave us with the same conclusion that the crowd leaves with. Verse 12, it says that they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. If we are looking at the Son of God rightly, we will be amazed and we will glorify God. So we might need to pick it up a notch as we start singing and praying. And we'll be amazed saying, I have never seen or heard of anyone quite like this. Have you submitted yourself to the authority of this Son of Man? If you have, we're going to encourage you to celebrate that the pronouncement your sins are forgiven has already been pronounced for you right now and will be a future pronouncement that you will finally live in reality for for eternity. We take the Lord's Supper and that's what we're pronouncing. We're saying that the death of Jesus, that his body broken, his blood poured out, has bought my forgiveness. And so if you have put your faith in the object, the right object of Jesus, then come and be reminded that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was poured out so that you might be forgiven. Do it in celebration, in joy, amazement, and glorying in God and what he has done. If you are not a believer, we would ask for you to refrain from taking this meal. When everybody stands up, it's okay to stay seated. You can find someone to talk to, ask them. We would rather you take Jesus than take this meal. And so please, if you don't know Jesus, don't take this meal, but take Jesus instead. And we would love to share with you what that's like if you don't know. But let's bow our heads in prayer and reflect and thank God and think how we can respond to his word before we take this meal. So let's bow in prayer together. Father, thank you that you looked upon a broken world and you said, I'm going to fix this. Thank you, God, that you see our needs for what they are and that you see our greatest needs so clearly and that, Lord, you not only saw it, but you met that need 
Father, forgive us when we make much out of things that are so secondary. God, may the needs that we have in our lives fade into the light of the greatest need that's been provided for. May we also know that we have a Heavenly Father who cares even about those things. Lord, you are so good to us. You came and you died. You took the penalty that we deserve for our sin. You lived a life that we could never live so that we could be restored to you. So that we, we wouldn't have to live lives paralyzed by sin and the fear of death. And Lord, we need people in our lives who can be faithful to remind us of this truth. We need the four men to bring us before your throne, to faithfully come alongside us and point us to our greatest need, to the object of our faith, to our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. We need you, Lord. We thank you so much for making yourself, yourself available to us, God. We would never have chosen you like Dylan said, Lord, we wouldn't have just missed the mark. Father, we have turned our backs. We would have stiffened our necks, never to turn to you. And yet, Father, you were so faithful to chase us down and to shine light in our hearts. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, God, if there's anyone here who has never had their greatest need met, I pray that this morning that would happen. And I pray for those of us who do know you, Lord, and who do understand this gospel that we speak of, that, Lord, we would be greatly encouraged and reminded and challenged to live in light of this wonderful truth. God, I pray that this meal would bring honor to your name as we think about the price you paid to meet that need. Help us be reminded of, of the future that we look forward to. And one day, Lord, sitting down to dine with you in a place that would blow our minds. Again, Father, you are so good. We pray these things in Christ's name. I want to give you guys just a few minutes to reflect and pray. Um,